Oh, wait, I got to turn. There we go. Turn Scott back up so we can hear him again. Mm-hmm. Four. Is this on the same track, or are you starting a second track? Nope. Okay. I haven't stopped recording. Okay. Oh, cool. Hang on. I am going to turn my phone down now, though. <laughs> do we have to do an intro? You got a cold? No, that's no. Barry White. We are, you're, you're we are joined White, today huh? by Barry White. <laughs> you are not... You guys, you're, you're not sitting here with Barry White today. <laughs> no, no, you, you're, you're a lot deeper than normal. Yes, I am. <laughs> Get that ver, 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 vibrato. Vibrato, vibrato, vibrato. Yeah. Freestyle, we want to get about 25 minutes with you. 25 minutes, okay. I, I, I imagine I can talk for that long. Oh, you will find that 25 minutes will pass in the blink of an eye. Okay. Oh, that's much better. Give me a few minutes. Absolutely. Hang on, I'm going to put you on hold for one second. Can you talk? I can talk. Okay. I I turned Scott's mic down since he's not here. I just wanted to make sure that it was his and not yours. Okay. I'm going to use this for the intro. Thank you for holding. We look forward to talking with Especially you Especially that part. Please hold the line. We'll be right back with you. Five, four, three, two, one. Look at them, madame. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. This is the gentle art of philately, otherwise known as stamp collecting. Here's a pile of stamps carefully culled from swap meets and garage sales. Rufus, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, like stamp collecting. Oh, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yes, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? I'm lonely. I'm so terribly lonely. All right, Homer. You beat those stamp Nazis with good old-fashioned American complaining. Homer, if it weren't for you, we'd be at the mercy of weekend philatelists. You know, why didn't you just say stamp collectors? Because I'm tired of dumbing myself down for you. From Spain and two from Japan I got a couple from Israel and Azerbaijan I got a plenty from Poland but none from Sudan Or from Fiji or Uzbekistan Stamp collecting happens when we dream together Welcome to Stamp Show here today, episode 103 Cash isn't talking this is Tom. <laughs> I'm Cash. I'm Scott. <laughs> and by the way, the Festivus poll is here on the table. So we're in the holiday spirit. No, that's Cash's holiday spirit. <laughs> yes, Barry White is with us. <laughs> Anyways, and I'm your host, Don. This week, with the change in temperature, there are two things people are lighting up. Their fireplaces and their martini glasses. So let's get into it. Well, Cash, Cash lit up his Festivus pole, too. Festivus poles are not decorated. That's the whole point of a Festivus pole. Hang on here. You make fun of me. I'm going to grab it and whack you with it. <laughs> here we go. Top ten words that sound romantic when spoken by Barry White. Number ten. Jazzercise. <laughs> 
I don't advocate violence. You, it but it, sometimes it's you necessary. did decorate it. It's got a cap on the top. Yeah, I it know. does have a cap, and it, and it, it is it, on a red pedestal. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. So you got the fancy one that looks homemade too, because <laughs> it is. It is. It is. <laughs> it's an old shower curtain rod. But first, a thank you to Bob Dumain. Our episode ninety-five has an RW one going into the stamp museum. We had a problem though, in that we didn't have an RW one. I want to thank Bob for his generous donation of an RW1 to the museum. Let him feel the love. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. So you can reach Bob at Sam Houston Philatelics and Auctions in Houston, Texas. Go to www.shpauctions.com and sign up for the free email newsletter. Yeah, he has a great auction, by the way, and we're going to talk with... uh, David Kugel later with Kelleher. Kelleher Auction is a big auction firm, so you know their lots close for between 200 and up. Sam Houston Auctions is great because it's for more collectors. It, they have things closing as, in as low as $20 range, all the way up to like $150 range. They have some more expensive stuff, but it's a auction that intermediate collectors can use, and that's why I really like this guy. I would say even beginner auction, uh, beginner users can use yeah, uh, his auction yeah. um, because you can find lots as low as 10 or $20. La, 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 la. And again, not eBay. So you don't have that sort of problem. You have a really easy return policy. Since not saying eBay is bad. eBay is fine. You just, you have to look out for who you're buying from. It's, it's more personal. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things where, like when you go to a show, you develop a relationship with a dealer. This is the same thing, except you're doing it online or over the phone or through the mail. But you are developing a relationship with a dealer. He happens to run an auction, but he also has a stamp store. Yeah. And a retail online shop. So, yeah, uh, I would strongly recommend Sam Houston and Bob Dumain. I think they're both great. They're one and the same. <laughs> on this day in history in 1933 exactly 83 booze filled years ago prohibition in the united states ended boo what do you mean boo wrong wrong kind of booze utah became the 36th u.s state to ratify the 21st amendment making the required 75 percent of states needed of all the states, it's interesting that Utah got the credit for putting it over the edge. The raw Utah. <laughs> this overturned the 18th Amendment, which made the manufacture, sale, or transportation of alcohol illegal in the United States. <laughs> but interestingly enough, not drinking the stuff. A little backstory. The U.S. Senate proposed the 18th Amendment on December 18, 1917, and on January 16, 1919, the amendment was ratified and the country went dry one year later on January 17, 1920. 
So uh, on January 17th, we know what this day in history is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yep, got to write that one down. I guess we can't celebrate that day. No. That would be the anti-celebration day. Mm-hmm. That would be the opposite of celebrating. So how do you explain all of the weird dances that came out of the roaring 20s? <laughs> Bathtub gin. <Yeah. laughs> That's exactly. how that happened. Uh. Exactly. <laughs> Seven. Dweeb. No, if ever there if ever there was a uh, a more appropriate use of the of this drop, it would be for prohibition. Why problem make when you no problem have you don't want to make? <laughs> well, I think they did think that they had a problem, but just a little drunken nugget. Prior to ratification of the 18th Amendment, the U.S. Congress passed the Temporary Wartime Prohibition Act, which banned the sale of alcoholic beverages having an alcohol content of greater than 2.75 percent. This act had been intended to save grain for the war effort. Yeah, but that doesn't make any sense because you don't make all your uh, alcoholic drinks out of grain. As a matter of fact, I can think of quite a few that you don't. Well, I see. Yeah, but there's quite a few that you do, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but you you, there's, there's a lot of potatoes, and there's a lot of beer, and there's a lot of wine. Well, beer, that's grain. Oh, yeah, take, take beer off it. But mm-hmm. <laughs> wine and vodka. Yeah, well... The good vodka is made of potato. The usual stuff we get is made with a grain. Don't forget the tequila. Oh, yeah. No mm. grain there. Was tequila a thing back then? Oh, yeah. Really? Well, tequila. Especially if tequila. you couldn't get tequila. 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 That's taquito. Oh, my favorite drink is tarantula tequila. Oh, it's so good. It's a spiced flavored blue colored tequila. It's citrus. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not real tequila, but it tastes good. Oh, it does. <laughs> exactly. I should need some hiccups. There you go. The Volstead Act, the popular name for the National Prohibition Act, was passed while Woodrow Wilson was president. Who's Woodrow Wilson? Why he was a president. Oh, Do you have any facts about him? I have a few Woodrow Wilson facts. Was he like Barack Obama? Yeah, he was president. Yeah. Oh. Did you know that President Wilson saw the passage of two constitutional amendments? The 18th Amendment that launched Prohibition and the 19th Amendment that gave the women the right to vote. Wilson tried to veto the National Prohibition Act, but Congress overruled him. So the 18th Amendment might not have gone if they hadn't overruled Wilson. As a child, Wilson saw Robert E. Lee. At the age of 13, Wilson and his father were at a procession in Augusta where the future president stood next to General Robert E. Lee. Hmm. I wonder if you got any, uh, any pointers. I mean, there's two pictures I can think of that are just epic. One is Lincoln's funeral, and in the window is um, Theodore Roosevelt as a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching the procession. Yep. And the other one is um, of JFK shaking hands with Bill Clinton when he was a kid. Oh, <laughs> I never saw that one. Yeah. Interesting. Isn't Photoshop great? <laughs> Photoshop. Now, Wilson had only a little over two years of political experience when he became the President of the United States. 
After a difficult conclusion to his Princeton career, Wilson won election as New Jersey's governor in 1910, and just two years later, he was in the White House. So only about two years worth of experience, so about two years more than our new president's going to have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get political. I'm not arguing the point. Well, I'm just stating a fact. I, you know, it's interesting because uh, of stamp collectors that I've seen, probably 90% of them are Republican or conservative. But let's not piss off the 10% that uh, really are angry that Hillary didn't win. Moving right along. In my defense, I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The 1912 election wasn't a popular landslide. Wilson won easily in the Electoral College against the divided Taft and Roosevelt factions. But his 42% popular vote total was the third lowest winning tally in history. Wow, 42%. And it was the third lowest. I wonder what the other ones were. Interesting. Well, you had the Bullman's party in that one, too, so it kind of divided the vote. No, no, but I think these are the these, these are the third the lowest winning, winning ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Bullman's party, for people, Taft was supposed to be Roosevelt's uh, prodigy. And he got in, and then Roosevelt didn't like him because Taft didn't do some things that Roosevelt wanted. So Roosevelt said, well, screw you, I'm running against you. And so Taft and Roosevelt split the Republican vote, and whoever was going to be the Democrat, they were going to win. But isn't that when Roosevelt made uh, the Bull Moose Party? Yep, it was. One of the most successful third parties in history. The Bull Moose Party? Yep. It's not the Rocky and Bullwinkle ticket? Yeah. Yeah. What for, moose or squirrel? Moose. Wilson's health problems led to constitutional change. The frail Wilson had a history of health issues, but stress related to promoting the League of Nations led to a series of strokes in 1919 that incapacitated Wilson. Eventually, the 25th Amendment, ratified in 1967, allowed for constitutional measures to deal with temporary or permanent incapacity of the president in office. Yep, they got right on that one. 60 years later, wham! <laughs> yeah, just in case he fell down on his festivus pole. Number six! Bite me. <laughs> and for his support of the League of Nations, he was given the 1919 Nobel Peace Prize. And a stroke. Back to the booze story. Although the Volstead Act prohibited the sale of alcohol, the federal government lacked resources to enforce it. By 1925, in New York City alone, there were anywhere from 30,000 to 100,000 speakeasy clubs. Hey, what do you have? You take a scotch. Right. Go up to. I got it. Swordfish. Go outside and see if it works. Okay, I'm going to dispute this. I'm sorry. While Prohibition was successful in reducing the amount of liquor consumed, it stimulated the proliferation of rampant underground organized and widespread criminal activity. I don't think it reduced the amount of liquor consumed at all. I think it actually helped more people consume more alcohol. Mm -hmm. You could well be right. I I thought you were going to say I disagreed because of the criminal activity. And I'm going, what about Al Capone and all his henchmen? Well, you know, my great-grandfather was a rum runner. I knew that. You knew that. Yes. I didn't. 
<laughs> my great grandfather was a um, a police officer by day, but at after all was said and done, um, as the father of eleven children, somebody needed to supplement the income, and there's a good way to do it by rum running. So didn't the police like pull him over? Oh, never mind. <laughs> Never heard about him getting caught, but uh, yeah, that's... that's just throw it in the back of the squad car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. You know, it became criminal activity, and you got somebody like Al Capone. Mm-hmm. I love that. Oh, what is that movie? Uh, the Untouchables. Untouchables. What a great film that is. Oh, but oh, you know what else yeah. was great? Is... Uh, Opening up Al Capone's vault. Oh no! And they found all that stuff inside of it. They found nothing. I thought they found like a bottle or something. They found a bottle and in a very embarrassed Geraldo Rivera, which made me laugh. <laughs> Al Capone's God, vault. I remember that. Everybody remembers that. I'm Geraldo Rivera, and you're about to witness a live television event. A massive concrete vault has been discovered. Some think it belonged to none other than the notorious Al Capone. Well, tonight, for the first time, that vault is going to be open live. There was nothing in Al Capone's vault, but it wasn't Geraldo's fault. Oh, God. Yeah, I remember watching it going, he's not going to find anything. He's not going to find anything. He's making an ass out of himself. And when nothing, <laughs> he found nothing, I just started laughing. Oh, I was hoping they'd find something. I mean, it was like, oh, the hype and everything. And then at the very end, they cut away and basically said, well, we're going to keep digging. And, of course, they kept digging and didn't find anything. Yeah, well, I'm skeptical. I'm not skeptical. I'm cynical. <laughs> In 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt signed into law the Cullen Harrison Act, legalizing beer and wine. Later that year, on this day in history, ratification of the 21st Amendment repealed the 18th Amendment. And now some prohibition facts. Uh In May 1657, the General Court of Massachusetts made the sale of strong liquor, whether known by the name of rum, whiskey, wine, brandy, etc., to the Indians illegal. Yeah, I saw this. This might not be true, but it is interesting. Shortly after the United States obtained independence, the Whiskey Rebellion took place in western Pennsylvania in protest of government-imposed taxes on whiskey. Although the taxes were primarily levied to help pay down the newly formed national debt, it also received support from some social reformers who hoped a sin tax would raise public awareness about the harmful effects of alcohol. Mm. Just like we have on tobacco today. Yep. Mm-hmm. The whiskey tax was repealed by Thomas Jefferson, which opposed the Federalist Party and good friend of the show, Alexander Hamilton. Yay, Alex. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, good president. Shout out to Alex, though. <laughs> Shares my birthday with me. Oh, he does? Oh, really? Yep. Which is a really cool thing to actually be in Washington one year and go to the Jefferson Memorial on my birthday. Oh, that all, is cool. All the, all the wreaths and stuff that were set out at the Jefferson Memorial is pretty cool. Damn, Tom, I didn't know you were that old. Oh. Nobody thinks I am. No. <clears throat> well, as long as you didn't say we shared the same day we died on. 
Well, that was me with Martha Washington. Yeah. My birthday is the day she died. That was sad. Yeah. You're the greatest a zombie. Thank you. <laughs> well, Tom. <laughs> yes, Cash. If you could know the day that you were going to die, would you want to know? Nope. Okay, never mind then. The American Temperance Society, formed in 1826, helped initiate the first temperance movement and served as the foundation for many later groups. By 1835, the ATS had reached 1.5 million members with women constituting 35 to 60% of its chapters. Some successes were achieved in the 1850s, including the Maine Law, adopted in 1851, which banned the manufacture and sale of liquor. However, it was repealed in 1856. The temperance movement lost strength and was marginalized during the American Civil War from 1861 to 1865. Yeah, th this was a biggie, the main law. Well, prohibition didn't spread during the Civil War period because the United States couldn't give up the tax money that alcohol got. They, they couldn't take that hit to income. The government can never give up their tax money. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Number five. Prime time catastrophe. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, WCTU, was founded in 1873. The WCTU advocated the prohibition of alcohol as a method for preventing, through education, abuse from alcoholic husbands. Yeah, this is interesting uh, from a stamp collecting standpoint because if you want to find some cool covers from this time period, go through them because people don't you'll see women's temperance or something like that or more uh, importantly you'll see WCTU covers and people won't know what they are and they're very highly collectible they're very highly sought after you can find them in dollar boxes which uh, oh also I'll give a shout out to Joel Weinstein at the Arcadia Stamp Show because he always has these big huge boxes of covers for a dollar and I have found these covers inside of these boxes, and they're pretty cool. Are they going into the museum? I should put one or two in the museum. Yeah. I think you need to put them in the museum. During the 1890s through the 1920s, hostility towards saloons and their political influence became widespread with the Anti-Saloon League superseding the Prohibition Party and the Women's Christian Temperance Union as the most influential advocate of prohibition First of all, anti-saloon league covers the exact same thing. Look in the dollar boxes, you will find them, and they are really cool. Second thing is that women's suffrage was really an offshot to temperance. Offshoot? Offshoot to temperance. Two other amendments to the Constitution were championed by dry crusaders to help their cause. One was granted in the 16th Amendment in 1913, which replaced alcohol taxes that funded the federal government with a federal income tax. That's what killed the main law and everything. They, they relied on the alcohol tax. So they said, hey, now we have an income tax. We can outlaw alcohol. The other was women's right to vote, which was granted after the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Since women tended to support prohibition, temperance organizations tended to support women's suffrage. Yep. So for our stamp museum, well, prohibition stamps or stamps of the 21st Amendment are scarce. Uh, non-existent, almost. 
There's only one that I found, and it is the Scott's 3184C, the Prohibition Enforced Stamp, from the Celebrating the Century issue, which shows two fellows dumping what appears to be a fine Merlot into a sewer hole. Uh, Merlot got a bad rap here. <sighs> yeah, it is definitely red stuff they're dumping, though. Could have been blood. Ooh, ooh, vampire stamp. Well, it depends. I mean, was that Chicago? Back in old Al Capone's day? Ah, good point. Our expert topic today is the stamp market. On the phone, we have David Kugel. David, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Hello, everyone. My name is David Kugel. I'm the co-chairman, co-owner of Daniel F. Keller Auctions, headquartered in Danbury, Connecticut, and as well as uh, managing director of Kelleher and Rogers auctions, fine Asian auctions in Hong Kong. So we bring the uh, United States and worldwide markets together as the only domestically United States owned company with uh, international offices. The company was founded originally in 1885 and has been in continuous operation as a philatelic auction company. And we have uh, serviced uh, more clients uh, these last three years than any other American-owned auction firm, and we offer priority boutique auction services for the sale at auction of collectors' collections, in, in the field, and we offer that to the entire philatelic marketplace. Um, we sell to more collectors than any other auction firm. Our prices, if you go to our website, kelleherauctions.com, you can search the many hundreds of thousands of items that we've sold and their price is realized. And we are publishers of the Kellerful, Kelleher's Collector's Connection, which is one of the premier magazines in philately with a worldwide circulation. Any collector may subscribe without charge. You can call or email us at info at The catalogs that we produce are produced with owner-inspired descriptions and lotting by myself and co-chairman, co-owner Lawrence Gibson. And we are very proud of the fact that we hand select and describe or or at least approve descriptions for each and every item lauded and sold in our in our auction catalog. You use the word boutique. I like that, but what does it mean? Well what it means is when you come if when you come to Kelleher for services, that means we handle everything. Uh, for you. You don't have to do a single thing. All the lotting, describing, imaging, pre-expertizing where needed, expertizing, getting certificates where needed, whatever's going to provide you, the seller, collector seller, with a premium experience, uh, we, we are surpassed by no one in the industry. So we honestly feel that the 30 years in the business experience that each of us owners have, so that's a combined 60 years experience, we provide to you exactly what you need in the way that you would if you were staying in San Francisco or New York City at a really high-end, smaller boutique hotel where we can give you personalized service that not only do we wish to give you, but you deserve. And we really we really enjoy being able to provide that service. Cool. Um, this is totally off the subject, but you're in Danbury, Connecticut. Is Danbury really sort of now the hub of stamp collecting? I know it used to be like Nassau Street, but I see so much, phil- so many philatelic companies 
based in or around Danbury that it just seems very, very interesting. Well, that's a really interesting point. I, I moved to Danbury to help a compatriot and, and, and lifelong mentor, Andy Levitt, with a company, started a company called Nutmeg, which I'm sure everyone can recall as a household word in philately. And prior to that, I think Andy's association and support of Danbury brought the Sotheby Park Bernay auction firm and his own firm in the Danbury area. And when you have really strong companies, with it come other companies that want to feed those companies with material or services, etc. So I don't think I would say Danbury is the epicenter of philately. <laughs> but boy, I'll tell you what, a lot is going on here in our offices. And it's changed so much that it's really not about a single location. It's about the impact that we have on the, on the World Wide Web, the Internet, and around the world. I mean, we really spend a lot. We have a six-figure budget alone for search engine optimization and online advertising. I don't know of any other philatelic firm that has that. So we reach out to the entire world, and I guess we bring them to Danbury through that connection. So I guess in some ways it is the epicenter of philately, but really that's, that whole dynamic has changed. Nassau Street is alive and well on the Internet, but not in one physical location. Yeah, I don't think I know there are some stamp shops still on Nassau Street, just you know, sort of there. But nobody is big anymore. And Like I said, I see so much stuff out of Danbury, Connecticut now. Um, you mentioned the Kelleher collectible. I just wanted you to bring it up that again because I personally do think that it is one of the best magazines out there. And you, I, and you can't beat the subscription price, that's for sure. Well, and you know, we're kind of shaping that as we go, I got to thank uh, editors Randy Neal and Professor Zelenak, Michael Zelenak, who are astoundingly brilliant in finding the content and structuring the content in such a way that it is interesting. And it's not just advertisements. I think we, you know, 80 pages, 70 pages, we may have four pages about sale dates and, you know, something we're featuring, but it's really to bring interesting philatelic concept. What we're trying to do at Keller is to reach out and tickle the funny bone of the philatelist that it may be inside the baby boomers as they are looking for other alternative hobbies and things to do at their time, bring back a boyhood passion or two, and, and kind of resell and rebrand stamps is a really great hobby. People with hobbies like philately and stamps live longer. They, they, they have longer active lives. They're, they're really, it's a great connection, a great camaraderie. It's not so much maybe about getting together at a stamp show. So we're trying to make Kelleher Collectors Connection that conduit of sharing the passion we so much enjoy with stamps and, to, and postal history to everyone around the world. And, you know, our, our subscriptions are actually, we send, we mail print and mail more copies than Lynn Stambus does. <laughs> yes. And I don't know with the online distribution, it's another 30 or 40,000. Yeah. No, I, I, the layout of the magazine, the articles, I mean, everything is great. You talk about no advertising, but realistically the whole thing is one big advertisement for Kelleher that, you know, you do such a fantastic job. I mean, when you get this magazine and 
I don't want the people to hear this and say, oh, it's a giant advertisement. It's really not. I mean, you have Patricia Kaufman who puts in an article almost every issue on Civil War stuff that's fantastic. Yeah, she's, I tell you, she's an amazing writer, and we are just so blessed to have her as just one of the many contributors. I mean, Larry Lyons has contributed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the list is really long of great research-oriented philatelists who provide connections that you just won't find in any other publication. Yeah, I have to agree. So you just had an auction that closed a couple days ago, I think, right? Yeah, we did. It was uh, ended on December 1st, three days. Uh, quite a few lots. I think 20, uh, 2,300 lots in total, and it was uh, it was a grueling three days of auctions. As the auctioneer, I, I got to say, I, I prefer calling 600 to the 800 lot today, <laughs> as some of those days were. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun. We try to make the online experience interesting and keep your attention. I, I hope that we do that, and to really uh, bring philatelic material back to philatelists and enjoy them. Well, that's something that uh, maybe some of the listeners don't know is that your auction uh, and other auctions too, but your auction, we're going to give you the plug here, obviously. You have people who can uh, go online and bid live at the auction sitting in their living room at their computer. Absolutely. it's uh, Right now, our software is uh, proprietarily leased through Stamp Auction Network, which I think is kind of the industry standard right now yeah. and I got to say that uh, we had well over 1200 online registered bidders I mean you know unfortunately they're not bidding on the same lot every lot <laughs> but they certainly make a big impact they metrically they buy about 40% of the number of lots in a sale and um, that's, that's interesting only surpassed by our pre-sale bidding Mm-hmm. That we receive prior to the auction where clients give us their bids and trust us with their bids and we execute for them on their behalf. Yeah, I think a lot of people, though, and it's, it doesn't matter how trustworthy you are. I mean, you could have a triple A rating. People still want to see the actual auction as it's progressing on their computer and be able to uh, hit a button and say, okay, I'll bid now. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Very interesting. So how did the auction do? So the auction uh, was, we were very pleased with it. It exceeded our pre-sale estimate. Um, but i got to say, to give a very accurate report, it seems to be following the same trend. Um, British and worldwide stamps, except for exceptional quality and scarcity, are waning in value. Uh, they, you know, the lots sell, but they bring a much lesser price unless they... Again, are those scarce French colonials, or we had some Greek occupations that were all expertized, which you never see mm-hmm. expertized in um, the British Commonwealth. You know, it did, did very well, um, but I think pricing points for things like, you know, Israel 7 to 9, a beautiful never hint set of tabs at, at 2800 Hammer, uh, is, 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 you know, where the market is today. And, you know, a beautiful blue nose schooner block from uh, Canada, you know, extremely fine never ends for $600 hammer. Ooh. I can remember when I first started in this business, that was a $3,000 block. Hey, yeah. And, you know, that's the, the mighty have fallen in the worldwide market. When you move over to the United States, uh, postal history was up and down. Uh, it seems uh, one of the agents, uh, 
nicknamed the Penguin, uh, <laughs> has a saying that what they want, they all want, and what they don't want, they don't want at any price. And I got to say that I think if you analyze postal history and all the sales, that's very evident that the, the better uh, advertising, illustrated advertising, or scarcer related items do very well. But your run-of-the-mill items and the things you run run into every day just don't do well or don't don't even sell. I mean, they're open very cheaply, and, you know, we have a lower percentage sell rate. We sell about 93 to 94% of the lots offered in our sale. And, um, and like most of the East Coast auction firms, we do call past or available when a lot doesn't sell. It's kind of like a little bit of buzz going on with that because some of the West Coast firms have 100% sell-through rate on their prices realized, and we always found that very interesting. We thought, wow, what are we doing so wrong? But it might just be that they report everything is sold, whether it sells or not. Or they or they own it themselves and bought it themselves. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, some of the stellar prices, I mean, quality United States, specifically 20th century, was off the charts. Um, you know, we did start off with a beautiful number one United States, very fine, mint never hinged, that hammered at 18000 which we thought was a very nice price. Uh, certainly the rarity of that is, is the nicest one we've had the pleasure to offer, and the many multiples and plate blocks were especially strong. The uh, 523 plate block brought a stellar price that brought 28000 hammer, which I think if you look, or 26000 hammer, excuse me, I think if you look, that's pretty close to a record price in the last five years for that item. And what is the five one at the Fletcher Sinclair Mansion sale at twenty four thousand? I thought, wow, what a great price! And here, two years, three years later, it brought a bigger price. And and what is that stamp? What is the five twenty three for the listeners? That is the two dollar orange and black Washington Franklin, and and you know, not many plate blocks of that survived. You know, from uh, the issue, and that. That's just a great item. It's just really wide top, you know, it's a top plate. They're all top plates. It's a beautiful plate. It cataloged 20000 in Scott, for example. Mm-hmm. So we got 26000 plus the tip. Oh, it's up, and I'd say, uh, almost 50%, I guess more than 50% above the uh, Scott catalog value. Very good. I think you also had a number five, didn't you? We had two number fives. Yeah. And indicative of the market, the uh, lesser valued one sold, and the higher valued one uh, did not sell. It passed. Mm. So, what did the lower value one sell for, or the lower uh, quality? Twenty-one thousand, which in today's market for a you know slightly heavily canceled small problem, small fins creases, uh, we thought was a very uh, fair price. The collector that purchased it did save some money on his bid, so he's very happy. It was executed from us on the book. Yep. And um, the higher price one, which we had a lot of a lot of interest in, no one pulled the trigger on it. So I guess at sixty thousand, it had an SMQ value of one hundred and sixty thousand. We thought it was a veritable buy. Yeah. And uh, it's just those classic U.S. nineteenth century U.S. is a very thinning market. Twentieth century, flip it around, and it's exactly the opposite. The higher grade quality things were bringing you know, in many cases, well above SMQ. And the U.S. number five for the listeners is a one-cent Franklin that only occurs in one position on the plate, so it's a position piece. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So, Very rare item is the rare type one seven R one E is the position, and it just really is a stellar, stellar yeah. item. The uh, the um, market, I think overall, very strong. We had a nice eighteen sixty nine six cent issue in the uh, one fifteen with George Washington SM two value of seven thousand brought seventy five hundred hammer. Mm. We had a, a very nice. Example of the uh, 15 cent 1869 inverse used that brought 11,000. Um, just I think all across the board, nicer quality things were doing quite well. But that's interesting. You said the older stuff now is not as strong a market as the newer stuff, and for decades it was obviously the opposite. People wanted the older stuff and not so much the new, uh, and by newer, you know, we're talking about the 1900s still, but. Yeah, I think, I think that the 19th century is still in demand. I think the issue is that they're, they're harder to find in the quality that clients want, and those that want that higher quality have got a, got, got a lot of them, and they're not looking to extend, you know, a four- or five-figure purchase in that area. And quite frankly, if you, you know, look at it from a completely aesthetic art type look, you know, the, the early stamps made them like the number five looks just like a number nine, which is a hundred dollar stamp. If yeah. you don't know the difference, you know, there's it's really the specialist that really understands and enjoys that. And in many cases, they're not as quality conscious as would be a 20th century collector that might be more comparative to like a coin collector mm. looking to buy, you know, the highest uh, mint state grade that they can afford. Okay, so for like the last thing, why don't you give the people who are listening a tip? What should they be looking for right now? What's hot right now? So what's hot right now are the pretty little commemoratives and regular issue stamps from 1900 to about 1920 and some airmails and select back of the book items that are in exceptional quality. So the better the centering, the fresher the, the backside, that's what that's what's hot in the U.S. market. Um, you know, prior to this, we had a, uh, in November, we had a Hong Kong auction. And, you know, it's always hard to find out where the, where the China market is because no one will ever really tell you. But what I can tell you, which indicates that's a very strong market, is the prices were slightly better than our previous sale, and most clients have paid, which means they had to come and pick up their stamps. When they come and pick them up and pay for them, that usually indicates to us a rising market and a strong market. Hmm. Oftentimes in China, if the market's flat or down, they'll drag their purchases out, try to renege on them, uh, et cetera. But for, for us, uh, we found the market to be very robust and strong. Oh, that's interesting. Well, any last word you want to give anybody? Uh, I, you know, I just I just hope that if you're in the marketplace to purchase, sell, appraise, consign, give Kelleher a try. I think you're going to find that this is our chosen vocation, and we will provide you with the very best opportunity to not only achieve the best price, whether buying or selling, but to be able to have that experience be something that when you look back upon it and reflect upon it as enjoyable. And that's our entire goal. It's the entire experience. And that's why we use that word boutique. We really mean that means a lot to us and our, and our uh, business and our integrity 
to bring that to the collecting public on the basis that they can have an enjoyable experience, know what they're in for, understand it, and enjoy it because they've been properly given the information they need in advance of the auction to enjoy it. Well, thank you so much, David. And can you also um, tell our listeners how uh, they can contact you? Sure. So our, uh, our website is kelleherauctions.com. Our email address is info at kelleherauctions.com. And we can be reached uh, toll-free, 877-316-2895, alternatively, 203-297-6056. And, or you can write us at 4 Finance Drive, Suite 100, Danbury, Connecticut, 06810. Great. Thanks so much for being with us, David. Thank you. You guys enjoy and wish everybody out there the best for the holiday season that is upon us. Thanks. You too. It's we would like to thank the following for information used in this podcast. Wikipedia, the Stuff You Should Know podcast, Kelleher Auctions and the Kelleher Connection, and again, Sam Houston Philatelics. Go to www.sh auctions.com and sign up for the free email newsletter thank you for joining us for episode 103 this has been cash scott tom and i'm your host on you can reach us with your questions or comments at stamp show here today at gmail.com twitter at stamp show ht or leave a message on our google voice number 1949-873-4298 you can also check out our website at stamp show here today.com or follow us on Facebook, or watch us on YouTube. And as always, keep collecting. And special guest appearance by Barry White. <laughs> After that, I need a drink. I know. <laughs> this episode of Stamp Show Here Today is brought to you by the Philatelic Book of Secrets, the book that teaches you about repurse, regums, color varieties, and much more. Get yours for $10 at www.philatelicsecrets.com today. No such song